0: House Republicans will return Monday evening. The House may go back into session at some point tomorrow, but we're not sure. The Senate will be back in session tomorrow, Tuesday, and stay in session through Thursday. So, last week in the House, the House met on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday to try to elect a new speaker. On Tuesday, the House took its first vote with Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan as the House Republican Conference choice for Speaker. But Jordan did not win enough votes on that ballot to win the Speakership. He won 200 votes, with 20 Republicans voting for other people. That left Jordan 17 votes short of the necessary threshold. On Wednesday, the House took its second vote with Jordan as the House Republican Conference choice for Speaker. On this second vote, Jordan actually lost a vote. He fell to 199. And his opposition inside the House Republican Conference grew from 20 to 22. On Friday, the House took its third vote with Jordan as the House Republican Conference choice for Speaker. Again, Jordan lost votes. This time he fell to 194. And again, his opposition inside the House Republican Conference grew from 22 to 25, as three Biden seat Republicans who had voted for him on the first two ballots abandoned him and voted against him on the third ballot. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House is scheduled to return on Monday evening, at which time, House Republicans will go into conference for a candidate forum where all the various candidates for Speaker will present themselves and make their pitches to their colleagues. No floor votes have been scheduled yet. As it was last week, it is the hope of many Republican leaders that they will be able to hold a floor vote for Speaker on Tuesday. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jennifer L. Hill to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Delaware. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Kathleen Munley to be U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Pennsylvania and Carla Ann Gilbride to be the General Counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to pass SJ Res 32, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval against the rules submitted by the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection relating to small business lending under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. On Thursday, the Senate voted by 97 to nothing to agree to S. Res. 17, a resolution standing with Israel against terrorism by Hamas. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Tuesday, with the first vote set for 2.15 p.m., at that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Michael G. Whitaker to be Administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see a vote on the nomination of Jessica Lumen to be Administrator of the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. Now to illegal immigration. On Saturday, Customs and Border Protection announced the September numbers for encounters at the southwest border, and they were a stunner. Encounters with illegal immigrants in September reached new highs with the highest monthly encounters number on record, in addition to setting the record for the number of encounters over the course of a fiscal year. In September, there were 269,735 encounters. That brings the total for FY23 to 2.48 million. That's higher than the 2.38 million records set in FY22, and higher than the 1.73 million set in FY21, each of which had previously set records. To put those numbers in context, in FY 2020, President Trump's last year in office, there were just 458,088 encounters. Meanwhile, the CBP encountered 18 people on the terror watch list in September, bringing the total for FY 23 to 172, also a new record and a total that's higher than the total number of encounters over the last six years combined. And on Sunday, the Daily Caller reported exclusively that a memo from the San Diego Field Office Intelligence Division of Customs and Border Protection warns other federal agencies that because of the war in Israel, terror-tied individuals associated with Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic-Palestinian Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine may seek to cross our southern border. Quote, San Diego Field Office Intelligence Unit assesses that individuals inspired by or reacting to the current Israel-Hamas conflict may attempt to travel to or from the area of hostilities in the Middle East via circuitous transit across the southwest border, unquote, says the memo. Now to the Jack Lew nomination. Senate Foreign Relations Committee opened its hearing on the confirmation of Jack Lew to be U.S. Ambassador to Israel on Wednesday morning. Before the chairman of the committee, Ben Cardin of Maryland, could even finish his opening statement, he was interrupted by a pro-Palestinian protester. Then, the ranking Republican, Jim Risch of Idaho, began giving his opening statement, and the same thing happened. A pro-Palestinian protester interrupted him. Florida Republican Marco Rubio accused Liu of lying to Rubio back in 2016, when Liu was serving as the Obama administration's Treasury Secretary, responsible for financial transactions with Iran. Despite the Republican opposition to Liu, he will likely be voted out of committee this week, possibly next, and then his nomination will be scheduled for floor consideration. Expect him to be confirmed and in place by early next month. Now to the emergency supplemental. On Thursday evening, President Biden gave the second primetime Oval Office address of his presidency, seeking to explain to his countrymen what were the stakes for the United States in the ongoing war in Ukraine, the new war in Israel, and a possible war in the Pacific. He failed miserably. In the course of his 17-minute address, he used the word Iran precisely twice. Even though Iran is the common denominator between the threats to U.S. interests in Ukraine and in Israel. On Friday, the Biden administration formally sent to Capitol Hill a request for $105 billion in emergency supplemental funding. That includes $61 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for military aid to Israel. billion to address the surge of illegal immigration at the southwest border, $10 billion in humanitarian assistance, and $7.4 billion for Indo-Pacific security. But when you break it down, there are serious problems with the funding request. For instance, the $10 billion in humanitarian aid for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and other places is not broken down specifically. Biden administration officials say they will determine where best to direct the funds once they're approved. That sounds familiar. And on the $14 billion for the border crisis uh, will be spent to increase the number of border agents, install new inspection machines to find and prevent fentanyl from crossing the border, and, and this is key, hire more people to process asylum cases. But again, it's not specifically allocated. So lots and lots and lots of it could end up simply hiring more people to process asylum cases faster rather than actually securing the border. Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, a close ally of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, attacked the proposal, saying, quote, President Biden's slush fund proposal is dead on arrival, just like his budgets. He continued, quote, We will not spend, for example, $3.5 billion to address the potential needs of Gazans, arguing that humanitarian aid to Gaza could wind up in the wrong hands. To wit, the hands of Hamas, which controls Gaza. Nor will we spend $4.7 billion for housing, transportation, and services for illegal aliens in the United States, rather than deporting them, he said. Senate Appropriations Chairwoman Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, announced the scheduling of a hearing on October 31, featuring Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Many Republicans on both sides of the Capitol Dome don't want to take on the emergency supplemental in one bite. They believe the Biden administration is tying the Israel aid to the Ukraine aid because the Biden administration believes it will be easier to assure passage for a legislative package that includes Israel aid because aid to Israel is so popular. Instead, these Republicans want to break out the Ukraine aid and vote on that by itself, or break out the Israel aid and vote on that by itself. Interestingly, it may be the case that U.S. aid to Israel has more support than does U.S. aid to Ukraine on Capitol Hill. But based on the most recent public polling on the subject, the American public sees things the other way around. Continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine is more popular than military aid to Israel. According to a CBS News slash YouGov poll released on October 19, 48 percent, less than half of survey respondents, supported arming the Israeli military. Meanwhile, a recent Reagan Institute poll found that 75 percent of respondents, including 71 percent of Republicans and 86 percent of Democrats, said that it was, quote, important to the United States that Ukraine win the war, end quote. Further, the poll shows 59% of respondents, including 50% of Republicans and 75% of Democrats, support military aid to Ukraine. More interestingly for me, after the pollsters told respondents that the United States had spent the equivalent of 3% of the annual U.S. military budget on direct military aid, and that Ukraine had, quote, severely degraded Russia's military power, unquote, Support jumped to 65% in favor, including 77% of Democrats and 59% of Republicans. Now, let's talk about the Trump indictments. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has her second and third guilty pleas in her cases against former President Donald Trump and a dozen and a half of his supporters in Georgia. Former Trump attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chisbrough both pled guilty to misdemeanor counts. Chesbro also pled guilty to one felony count, marking Wilson's first felony conviction in her sprawling case. Significantly, neither Powell nor Chesbro was required to plead guilty to the felony count of engaging in a RICO conspiracy to destroy American democracy. Both avoided a prison sentence, and both agreed to pay fines and restitution totaling less than $10,000 for each. Both also agreed to write a letter to the residents of Georgia apologizing. Given how much stock Willis had placed in her grand conspiracy theory of the case, her willingness to accept guilty pleas to misdemeanors and not even require either to even admit they were guilty of the conspiracy charge is a blow to her entire case against Trump. Stay tuned. Now, the contest for speaker. Jim Jordan's candidacy for Speaker of the House died on Friday when, after three successive failed attempts to win a majority vote on the floor of the House, he went into a meeting of the conference in the belief his candidacy would be confirmed by a secret ballot vote. Instead, by a vote of 86 members for him and 112 voting against him, with five voting present, his colleagues in the House Republican Conference voted to remove his designation as their nominee for Speaker. They were back to square one. Having nominated two candidates for speaker and having yet to win a floor vote with either one, the House Republican Conference continues its search for a new speaker. Nominations were open from Friday afternoon until Sunday at noon. As of noon Sunday, nine candidates had offered themselves for consideration. They are Jack Bergman, who has represented Michigan's first congressional district since 2017. Byron Donalds has represented Florida's 19th Congressional District since 2021. Tom Emmer has represented Minnesota's 6th Congressional District since 2015. He served as the chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee in the 2020 and 2022 cycles. So he's got a close connection to everyone who was elected to the Congress first in one of those two cycles. That's about 80 freshman and sophomore members of the House Republican Conference. In other words, more than a third of the members of the conference owe at least a small allegiance to the guy who was the first and probably most important Republican congressman they knew during their campaign. The importance of this connection cannot be underestimated. Kevin Hearn has represented Oklahoma's 1st Congressional District since being appointed to fill out the remaining weeks of previous incumbent Jim Bridenstine's term in 2018 due to a quirk in Oklahoma's election code. He was elected chairman of the Republican Study Committee, the single largest caucus of House Republicans, taking over in early 2023. Mike Johnson has represented Louisiana's fourth congressional district since twenty seventeen. He serves now as a member of the House GOP leadership team, as vice chairman of the House Republican Conference. He previously served term as chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Dan Muser has represented Pennsylvania's seventeenth Congressional, I'm sorry, ninth congressional district since twenty nineteen. Gary Palmer has represented Alabama's 6th Congressional District since 2015. He serves now as a member of the House GOP leadership team as chairman of the House Republican Policy Committee. Austin Scott has represented Georgia's 8th Congressional District since 2011. Pete Sessions has represented Texas's 17th Congressional District since 2021. Prior to serving his last term and a half, he had previously served as the U.S. Representative for Texas' 5th District from 1997 to 2003 and Texas's 32nd District from 2003 to 2019. From 2009 to 2013, he served two terms as Chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee. The 2010 elections, in which Republicans flipped 63 seats and regained control of the House, after two terms of Democrat control came under his watch. Emmer and Scott voted on January 6, 2021, to certify the Electoral College results of the November 2020 election. The others refused to. Emmer won the endorsement of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Not surprisingly, based on what I just told you about his vote to certify election results on January 6th, former President Donald Trump does not endorse Emmer. In fact, Trump is said to strongly oppose Emmer. The nine candidates and the rest of the House GOP conference will gather at 6.30 p.m. Monday night for a candidate forum. There's no telling how long it will go on, and we know nothing at this point about the format of the event. We do know it will be members only. I would expect that not all nine candidates will emerge from the GOP conference meeting on Monday night, convinced they should go forward to the balloting on Tuesday. I wouldn't be at all surprised if several of them ended their candidacies before the voting begins. I'm assuming that the House GOP conference will begin voting on Tuesday morning. Rule 4 of the conference rules of the 118th Congress is entitled Conference Election Procedures, and it reads, All contested elections shall be decided by secret ballot, and no proxy voting shall be allowed. It continues, When there are more than two candidates for any office, and none receives a majority of the votes on the first ballot, a quorum being present, the candidate with the lowest number of votes on that and each succeeding ballot will be dropped from the ballot until one candidate receives a majority of the votes, a quorum being present. So, that's about as simple as simple can be, majority vote rules. When one candidate receives a majority vote, the contest is over, and all are expected to line up behind the winning candidate, even and especially those who supported the losing candidate or candidates. Nowhere in the rules of the House GOP conference is there a rule that says all members of the conference are required to vote for the nominee, of the conference, or suffer pain of expulsion from the conference or some other punishment. Prior to this recent episode, there never needed to be anything formally written down. Everyone just understood how it worked. You run your campaign, you vote for your favorite candidate, the conference makes a selection, and then everyone lined up behind the team's choice and supported him or her on the floor. Apparently, the ills of modern society have infected the House GOP conference. When external controls are relaxed, internal controls are required. But when internal controls are removed, there are no controls left, and chaos is the result. Now to The Jenny Beth Show. Jenny Beth stayed in Louisiana for episode 36 of her podcast. The interview with Louisiana State Representative Beryl Amadei traces the political career of a one-time stay-at-home homeschool mom who found herself spending more and more time in the state capital, Baton Rouge, as a grassroots activist concerned about the state's policies toward homeschooling. From there, it was a hop, skip, and a jump to local office, then the state legislature. Highly recommend it. And that's our Washington report for this week.